You know those moments where you think, I wish I would have learned this in school? Those are the topics that we love to talk about. Join me each week as I interview experts sharing their strategies for solving problems that us young adults will face throughout our 20s and 30s. So what are you waiting for? And if you want new episodes about adulting advice every Monday, hit that follow button. When I started my first big boy job, I signed up for our 401k program. HR handed me this packet of papers and essentially said, good luck. I remember sitting at my kitchen table that night trying to make sense of fund names, historical yields, and asset allocation charts. Nothing will make you realize school did not prepare you for the real world like that kind of moment. I remember thinking, wow, I am never going to understand this. And when I have money, I need to hire someone to make these decisions for me. But I didn't need a pricey advisor or even fancy software. I needed financial education so I could feel comfortable and confident in my choices. I thought it was going to take decades of experience or even having to go back to college to get a degree in finance. But once I got serious, it only took me about a year of learning and practicing before I felt like I could really handle the money choices that life threw at me. Today's guest would argue with her guidance, you only need 90 days to master your money. And after getting to know her, I believe it. In her early 20s, Mills was lost when it came to money. So lost that one day she woke up with a dollar and 50 cents in her bank account. Mills started to demystify and understand the different facets of money. She now helps others do the same through her financial coaching business, Mills Knows Bills. In this conversation, we cover a lot of money concepts, including the cost of delaying investing, the four money mindsets, and creating a budget that reflects your priorities. We also discuss how to turn your passion into a business, something Mills has a little bit of experience with. You know the drill though, if you're a listener of the show and you haven't left us a rating and review, we'd really appreciate it if you did. And if you're new, you have nothing to do. All I want you to do is sit back, relax, and let's learn something new. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the Shark Tank lover, the MCU fan, and the spreadsheet queen herself, Mills Bender. So being a fellow enthusiast of Shark Tank, who's been one of your favorite celebrity Shark Tank judges? And if you need a couple of name prompts, happy to throw some out to you. I was going to tell you, I mean, like Kevin O'Leary is my fave, Mark Cuban, for sure, I would 100% sign away 95% of my business. But <laughs> celebrity. You want me to give you a couple? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me a couple. All right. So I know you know Sarah Blakely, Alex Rodriguez, former baseball player, for sure. Blake Mankowski, founder of Tom's, Kendra yep. Scott, founder of Kendra Scott's, uh-huh. Kevin Hart, comedian, actor. You remember any of these on Shark Tank? You like I them, do. dislike I'm them? I'm remembering all of them. So <laughs> I, I, I got to say Sarah Blakely. Yeah, I figured so. I should have just gave you that one to start with. <laughs> I got to go with Harry. I, I did like Blake from Tom's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's fun. I like him. The Bombas founders, I think that was really freaking cool because they started off. Oh, I'd never seen that one before. They brought Bombas back? I am 75% sure that they did. Don't quote me on that. Well, I need to keep this up on my browser right now. If it wasn't Shark Tank, I saw them at a conference. <laughs> Either way, it was really cool kind of seeing how they've grown. 
I love Bombas. Of course, I love Shark Tank. I've like always just grew up loving Shark Tank in general, and it's become better and better as they've gotten a little bit more budget and production. Yes. Uh, and then my, my girlfriend gave me a ton of grief for liking Shark Tank for the longest time. And then I got her to watch one. I think we were just like in a hotel room, you know how it is. And you like press the TV and for some reason, Shark Tank's always on. And I sat down and listened to it. After like one episode, she was hooked. And then we had to go back and binge all of the Shark Tank episodes too. And she is a huge, huge Bombas fan. She spends all of her Christmas money on Bombas socks now. Uh, oh my gosh. Swears by them. So we've watched that one a couple of times. <laughs> I love it. It's always so cool. I have a friend of a friend who did Odang Hermes. Oh, cool. And he, he went on Shark Tank and made a deal. That was dang. Really and when the episode aired, they aired it in Student Union. Wow. Dang. It's like, well, would you just completely fangirl if you were on Shark Tank at some point in time? A hundred percent, yes. I'll cry. But also, it is my goal to be working with one of the sharks, whether I go on Shark Tank or not. And then second goal would be to become a guest or permanent shark. That would be so legit. Wouldn't that be so cool? And the thing is, people got to be on Shark Tank. Like, it's like everyday Joes and Jans. It's, it's cool, too, because I've met or I know of a couple of people that have been on Shark Tank as well, just through Ethos Networks. Actually, my girlfriend knows like two or three people that have been on Shark Tank because she's interviewed them. She has a cool series called Badass Women, and she does them in different cities. And a couple of them have been on Shark Tank. And I'm like, wow, it's actually like closer than you think. Like, it's not unobtainable. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've watched some episodes. I'm like, wow, my business is actually at the point where I could probably go on Shark Tank. That's pretty cool. I could do that in a couple of years. <laughs> but I'm like, I got to hit these metrics before I, I talk to Mark Cuban. Well, enough of Shark Tank. I'm really excited to, to have you on The Struggle is Real. We're actually covering a topic today that for some reason I've completely missed in my educational catalog and I've covered tons of financial literacy. I don't think I've really ever covered debt in any long-term format whatsoever. And then I ran into you at a networking event and you were talking about a debt payoff strategy. So that's exactly what I want to talk about because so yeah. many 20-somethings are struggling with debt, let it be student loans, auto loans, credit card debt. And they might be running into all of these cash flow issues, living paycheck to paycheck, accidentally overdrafting, recycling debt from one 0% APR credit card to the next. And they are tired of you know, spinning their wheels in this cycle and they want to actually make forward progress. Mm -hmm. So that's what I want to talk to you about. That's exactly why I was excited. And maybe it makes sense to start more personal before we get into some more actionable. And I know you married your husband the day after graduation, which is so cool. Congrats. What a crazy time for you. But I believe you were somewhere in the like negative 25,000 to negative 30,000 net worth at that time. And you, I think, completely rechanged that in like less than two years from that number to zero. And then now the last I heard your net worth was like 370 or something, which once again, congrats. <laughs> Thank you. It's actually a little higher now. I haven't talked nice. about it lately online just because baby life has gotten a little crazy. But yeah, our, our assets have gotten significantly higher and liabilities have gone lower. So it, you know, just keeps improving, which is nice. Baby steps. <laughs> Good for you. Thank so you. I, I guess bringing you back to, to you... Waking up, doing that calculation, figuring out that, oh man, I'm in negative net worth. First, how was that feeling? Were you overwhelmed? Were you action-oriented at that time? And then I guess second to that too, what did you actually do to make progress on that? 
Yeah. So it's, it's actually Sunday. You're the first person who's ever asked me about the whole network thing. My come to Jesus moment with my finances was really the day that I woke up and found that I had a dollar 50 cents in my bank account. I didn't even know what net worth was at that point because I was 18. I think it turned 18. I had checked my bank account because I wanted to see what I could afford going out to dinner that night with my friends. And I wanted to, you know, peruse the menu and just mentally cross off what I knew with all of my spending budget, I would say. But at that point, I had never set a budget. I had never dealt with finances at all. I mean, I didn't even really know how to apply for a credit card at that point. So when I had that moment, I started asking myself all the questions like, how did I get here? How can I make sure it never happens again? How do I apply for a credit card? What's a mortgage? But it really started these questions of financial learning. And then I realized there was probably a lot that I wasn't asking myself because I was never I was never aware of it. So at that point, I would say the next three years or so, as I began my financial learning, that's when I started figuring out all these different things like net worth and debt, leverage, all these different pieces. So it really wasn't until I got married about three years later that I looked at my net worth for the first time. And so I think it's important to know that it wasn't like I woke up one day with all these questions and then I started working on all of the answers all at once. It was as I started to improve certain areas, I realized there were other areas that needed improvement too. So when I realized our combined net worth was negative 30K, I realized we needed to do something to fix that. And that's where I really took all of the learning from the last three years and started putting it to use. Budgeting, debt payoff, starting to invest, all those different pieces. And I don't think negative 30K at that age is something that is A, insurmountable, and B, not common either. I would assume most students coming out of college are probably carrying a negative net worth. Yeah, I think... I did the the research on it maybe a year ago at this point, but it was something crazy. Like most people up until they're 28, I think, have a negative net worth. It really takes some time once you're, you're in your career to start getting to zero. And then even at, you know, the age of 28 or 29, it's like positive 10K and it doesn't shoot up for a really long time. And I think that's due to the fact that People just aren't, they're not getting the education on finances. Number one, how to avoid bad debt. Number two, how to invest. There's so much that investing can do for you at a young age, and it doesn't cost you as much when you're younger. What do you mean by that? So, for example, if you were to start, okay, I'm going to pull some numbers out my butt here, okay? Mm-hmm. If you wanted a million dollars by the time you retire at 65, Justin, if you are 25 right now, let's say that costs you $100 a month every month for the next 40 years. However, if you were to wait until you're 35 to get to that same million dollars, it's not going to cost you $100. It's going to cost you $300 a month. So for every 10 years you wait to start investing, it's going to cost you three times as much to get to that same dollar amount at the end. So the 18, 19, 20-year-olds that are in college right now still, whether you have debt or not, if you have a ton of money or not, investing $20, $15 each month, that can do a lot more for you than you're giving credit for, especially by the time you graduate 
have a good job that's paying you a decent amount of money. You know, if you're making those smart decisions now, those little pieces make a huge impact 10, 15, 20 years down the road. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree. And, and even simply just going and getting your 401k match, because then you're probably only doing half the work you need to do too, because yeah. if your employer is matching you one for one or even 50 cents to the dollar, you're putting in $100 a month. It's actually $150 yeah. a month with your employer match there. And you will thank yourself in the future that you at least gave yourself a head start because I know every single person that I talk to that has some sense of financial literacy always tells me, man, I wish I would have started earlier. Yeah. I wish I would have started a couple more years before I did. <laughs> and the thing is we can't, but you know, being 20, being 30 right now, you can just go ahead, make sure that you're setting yourself up. Maybe it does feel overwhelming to start investing right now. Just go simply get your 401k match right now, tomorrow, go talk to your HR rep, get that done. And then we can start working on all the other things on the background. I think a lot of people don't start that process sooner because they feel like they're, they're not smart enough or maybe because they've never done it before. It's a lot more complicated than it actually is. Setting up your 401k is not that hard. It really isn't. Starting an investment account is not as difficult as you're making it out to be. It only seems like this daunting task because of the jargon that's in the financial industry. Well, let me challenge you on that too, yeah. because I remember, I, I know both sides actually. I realize now that I am a DYIer and I manage most of my investments outside of my, my 401k, my HSA at work. But, mm -hmm. but granted, I'm more than capable of managing those two on my own. Yeah. And I do remember back being 22, being 23 and getting the, the 401k paperwork and just being overwhelmed because I'm flipping through this book mm -hmm. and I'm looking at all these funds that I'm supposed to be selecting. And I'm like kind of trying to figure out these numbers that it gives you that are indicators on like, which might be good, yeah. which might, need, might be bad. If I find myself in that situation, what, what do I do? <laughs> so I agree. The paperwork was definitely overwhelming, but it's a lot of paperwork and it's a lot of jargon because they have to give disclaimers and they have these fancy terms for a lot of things. But if you were to have it broken down to you, Justin, and say, you looking at what year you want to potentially retire and just selecting the fund, basically the investment account that will allow you to retire at that time, that's, that's step one. And what I would encourage anybody who is in a situation where they're doing this for the first time, number one, ask for help. Talk to your parents, talk to a financial advisor, talk to anybody who's done it before because they were in that situation at one point. You don't need to make it taboo. But number two, getting started with something and then improving upon it later is better than doing nothing. Mm. Even yes. if you are afraid of making the wrong decision, like choose the most conservative thing you possibly can. But then like talk to somebody to, to get it better in the future. However, do something. You putting it off is, is not going to do you a financial service in the future. Yeah, 100% agree with that. And, and that's kind of the, oh, man, the, the scaries that I hear a lot from friends that are asking me about investing too. The problem isn't that they don't have enough money to invest. The problem is they are scared to invest. And I've met plenty of people that have $30,000, dollars $50,000 sitting in their bank account. And maybe you need that because you're a business owner, you have all these things and that's your emergency fund. Right. Every situation that I've talked to, they do not need that much money in their bank accounts. I mean, that is probably 18 months 
of runway for them on all of these things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and it's it kind of boiled down to the fact that they're like, I don't know what to do with it. And it's really come to light the last couple of years too, because inflation numbers are just outrageous right now. Right, exactly. I mean, quick little tip for anybody who has money sitting in a, an account that's earning 0%. If it's money for your personal financials, go to Ally Financial, open up a savings account. They're getting 3.3% right now. I know. It's incredible. 3.3%. And although that's not going to beat out the 8% or so inflation right now, it's a hell of a lot better than letting it sit in something that's getting nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Oh, man. Someone just told me, uh, man, I had Jeremy Kyle on. It will, it will be recent in this feed, but it, it was like a month and a half ago for me too. Yeah. He told me a service and they transfer that money around between the different banks that are paying the highest interest at that time. And they take like a 0.08% off the top of it. And I'm, I'm with you. I'm not one that likes to go look at the bank rates and pick the biggest one at the time and then shuffle it because five of the top 10 are people that are going to drop out the next month that were just in there to grab some customers. So right. I'm, I'm with you too, like default to Ally, if anything. Yeah. Yeah. Same with like investing for me too. If you're setting up a brokerage, I just say default to Fidelity because I think it's a, a great brokerage that's out there too. But man, we took a tangent there. <laughs> that's okay. Clearly we're both passionate about doing something with your money. Yeah, no joke. So <laughs> I guess circling back to the, the negative net worth too, you didn't just start investing right away, I'm guessing. What, what other tangible steps did you start working towards? Oh, I found a job. (laughs) So I actually made some money besides the stipend and scholarship I had. I stopped spending money on things that weren't necessary. And I really just started learning. That's been by far the best investment I've ever made in myself, was taking the time to learn about finances so that way I could start making better decisions. But then I would second point to that, very close to the first is actually taking action. So I started investing when I wasn't fully confident that I knew how to invest. Mm -hmm. It's something that you just got to start practicing to learn, kind of like going to the gym and deadlifting properly, right? The first couple of times, you might hurt your back, but then you got to practice the form and then you figure out the form and now you can lift double your weight, right? So I started investing right before I actually looked at my net worth for the first time. And I just started one lump sum and then, all right, well, hopefully this investing thing works out. And over the last few years, it really has just. Good for you guys. Was Joe always on board with this too? Yeah, he's actually the one who encouraged me to change my major. So yeah, I never really thought I was smart enough to study finance. So I got my degree in it, not because I wanted a job in finance, but because I wanted to learn a skill set, regardless of what job I had. I just so happened to fall in love with it along the way. I've always liked math. And then I was like, oh, this is wealth and money combined. But he was like, just go for it. You know, especially if you're not putting pressure on yourself to get a, a job in finance. Who cares what your grades are? Just do the best that you can. And then see where you land after that. And I ended up doing really well. I loved it. Now I make, made a career out of it, made a business out of it. Like, yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, I, I really wish a lot of students realized that maybe they should just follow curiosity whenever they're choosing a major or picking classes versus like this, I'm trying to line out my career path for the rest of my life. Because with hindsight now being 29, looking back on it and knowing so many other friends and also knowing colleagues that are twice my age too, after a couple of years, your major doesn't matter that much unless you're in like a specialized field like 
you're a doctor. <laughs> even then, it doesn't, it doesn't even matter half the time. I have friends who study psychology and are now in insurance claims right out of college. I personally, whenever I'd hire somebody, I don't even ask them what their degree is in. I could not care less. What, what do you ask them? I know you're in a hiring spree right now. You've made two hires and you're about to hire another person. What are some key characteristics that you've been looking for? I look at skill sets more than anything. I look at their previous experience. I will ask them. I have a list of tasks that I then ask them to categorize in love, neutral, dislike. Do you force them to do an equal amount into each or just... It doesn't have to be an equal amount to each. And when I ask them, you know, what do you love doing? And I have 30 different tasks, right? Normally, if somebody loves doing something, they're really good at it. If somebody doesn't like it, they're not good at it or they just don't want to be good at it. And then neutral is kind of those I can, but it's not my zone of genius. So if I'm looking for somebody who's in sales and I see that they have networking, prospecting, following up with clients, but like in their dislike category, they're not going to be a good salesperson. But if I see somebody who has every single one of those things in the love category, including, you know, the fact that they love time management and they're organized, they're going to be a good salesperson. If they don't know how to talk about sales in a financial coaching capacity, that's fine. I can teach that, but I can't teach the desire to want to do sales. I can't teach being detail-oriented or being organized. I can talk about it until I'm blue in the face, but... There are skill sets that you can teach and there are some that just come naturally to people. I hire the natural skill sets for the roles I'm looking for and train the rest. Mm. And I think that's probably a pretty good strategy. Has it worked so far? Since I started doing it, yes. When I was not doing it, no. What about yourself in particular? Were you figuring out your zone of geniuses and then outsourcing the rest? Like even something like, I heard you mention bookkeeping on a podcast as something that you outsource just because yeah. you don't enjoy it, which actually really surprises me as the financial person. I'm, I'm guessing you probably would have wanted to have your hands on that. No, no. I'll tell you why. Bookkeeping is historical. I do budgeting and forecasting. That's all future. I don't want to relive something twice. <laughs> Categorize it in the right stuff. I've already looked at it and compared it to my budget. I don't want to then sit there and put it in the right chart of accounts and reconcile. That, that's not my thing. It's not. But as a business owner, you wear a lot of different hats, especially when you are a one woman or one man show. The first thing that you do is outsource the stuff that you horrible at or you hate with a burning passion. And then from there, you look at, okay, well, I can manage this. But at one point, I'm now at where I'm hiring because I don't have time to do everything or the capacity. So yeah, I mean, I've outsourced three aspects of my business. I've hired for, I'm looking to hire an additional eight this year, but I've, I've made a list of everything that I do in my day-to-day. I'm like, all right, this is not serving me in my time. Let's help somebody else in their finances and give them a job. And then I can expand and do something else. Can you talk about the journey of entrepreneurship for you? Because you launched what was supposed to just be a YouTube channel a little over, what, two years ago, never really defined yourself as a business owner. It probably took you like half of that journey, it sounded like, to actually be like, yep, I'm a business owner. Here I am. Can you tell me a little bit about the emotional roller coaster of all of that? So November 2018, I was a mortgage processor, hating life. 
It was not, not my life's purpose. Learned a lot. <laughs> but I remember sitting in a hotel room and I was like, I'm so miserable. What, what should I do? What should my life purpose be? And so I ended up taking a career test and it came back with entrepreneur. It's like, next, another <laughs> test said the same thing. I'm like, this is both wrong. I'm taking a personality test now. Came back with the same thing. I'm like, I don't have anything to sell. I don't know what to do. I'm not a business owner. And then three months later, I went to a conference, the Grant Cardone 10X conference. And I was surrounded by a lot of business owners. Mind you, I didn't even want to go to this conference. My dad made me go. And really? Yeah. He's like, come on. I don't want to go. I was like, come on, learn some stuff. I'm like, whatever. Fine. Make you happy. We'll spend time together. We're sitting there. This is actually kind of cool. Okay. But I have no ideas. Fast forward to October, 2019. I had a shoulder surgery and I couldn't work. So I was going for walks a lot. And on those walks, I would think a ton. And at that time, when I really picked up on helping people with their finances in an informal way, budgeting, helping them pay off debt, learning how to save and stop overdrafting on their bank accounts. And I remember telling Joe, my husband, I said, I just want to do what I'm doing with XYZ person full time. I could do that. I would feel so much passion every single day. <laughs> and he's like, well, then like do Coursera or Khan Academy or something. And that's when I started down the rabbit hole of the idea of the YouTube channel. So I came out of the sling November 2019, got to work January 2020. I launched my first video, lost my full-time job March of 2020, dove deeper into Milton's bills. I actually did not have a plan of it going full-time for five years. And things just kind of picked up. I brought the right people in place in terms of coaches who poured into me, mentors who encouraged me. And I ended up going full-time April 2021. Wow. And have not looked back since. Wow. It seems like COVID really helped accelerate some people's dreams, you being one of them. And I've run into tons of people that were also like, that sucked in the moment, but I'm really glad it happened now because that actually just forced me to make the hard decision that I yeah. really probably needed to make in the long run. Yes, pivot. Who were one of the mentors, coaches that you mentioned that made an impact on you? So one of whom was a business owner I was networking with, whose name is Rogelio Rodriguez. Always looked up to him and then I got the, the courage to ask him to be my mentor. Wait, how'd you ask him? Like, was it just a, like an awkward, like, will you be my mentor? Did you have like a plan in place? I called him. Oh my God, I look into you. Will you please mentor me? <laughs> That's cute. It's like, take me to lunch, yeah. Like, look at you. <laughs> and then one of my best friends, Reese Whiteley, he actually opened his business in May of 2020. I helped him kickstart it and he gave me a paycheck for a little bit of time with, while I was growing Mills and his bills. He wasn't ever a formal mentor, but I've always looked up to him, still do. In fact, talked to him for 30 minutes today, asking for his advice. And then since I've been moving back to Orlando, I went to a networking event, saw a really cool speaker at said networking event, looked at him without, you know, actually saying this. I'm like, I'm going to make him a mentor. <laughs> he, he is powerful and cool. <laughs> Had a really great time networking with him at the event, took him to lunch. At lunch, I was like, hey, so you my mentor? And he said, yes. I was very excited. Meet with him every other month. 
So I just, I either surround myself with really cool people or I ask specific people to be my mentors. And I love putting myself in rooms where I feel like the smallest fish. Yeah. Absolutely. As soon as I start feeling comfortable, I, I have to move myself to a room that I feel uncomfortable in. Yeah, which I commend you on. I think that's a hard thing to do, honestly. I mean, I think people would say that, but it is much harder to just actually get out of your comfort zone there. But in terms of the mentorship piece to it, are you pretty intentional with, I'm trying to get this out of mentorship? Like, what does that actually look like? You're meeting every other week. Are you driving an agenda or coming to the table with some things that you want to talk about? Yeah, so Socrates, the gentleman who mentors me here in Orlando, Every other month we sit down and I, I specifically chose him to be my mentor. And I, I made this known to him before I asked. He runs a business. He has scaled it to the point where he no longer needs to be there on the day to day. He is an adjunct professor, which has been a goal of mine for a long time. He is a godly man, which aligned with my faith and core values. And he's just really nice and donates a lot of his time, talent, and treasure which is something that I value as well. And so I brought these things to him and I said, this is why I want you to be my mentor. I am currently right here in my business and I would like to get to where you are within, at least up to this point, right? Within three years, five years, whatever it matters to be. So every time I meet with him, I have four to five questions that I list out. Nine times out of 10, we go through the first two. But how we go through the first two helps me answer the remaining on my own. And last time I sat down with him, I said, I am at an issue where I need to hire people, but I'm having a hard time finding the good people. He ended up telling me to rework my core values and buy my core values online, in person, all of that, make it a lot more well-known. And I would start attracting those types of individuals. It's really true. And my questions for him when we meet in two weeks are going to be, how do I scale this particular area of my business? At what point did you invest into this type of software? Right. So my questions always elevate, but it's really cool seeing the perspective of somebody who's there and is living where I want to be in a much shorter time span than he got. And what if I just like, yeah, that sounds great. I probably know one of those people in my life that I really mm-hmm. look up to, that I'd love to be where they are in five, 10 years, whatever it may be. But I feel like I don't really have anything to add in terms of value to this relationship. How do you feel like you're adding value to the, your mentorship relationship? The only thing Socrates asked me was that it's the opportunity presented itself for me to mentor somebody else. And I am. Mm. So I actually mentor formally one person and formally another. And I say informally because we don't have consistent times and things like that. But it is an honor. One thing I've learned, it's, it's an honor for somebody to ask you to be their mentor. And if somebody here is wanting to ask that person to be their mentor, chances are they're going to be really excited about it. Mm-hmm. But what goes along comes around. So when you get asked to be a mentor or if the opportunity presents itself for you to offer being a mentor to somebody else, you should do it because that's how we all grow and help each other. 
Yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm flattered when anybody comes to me with any piece of advice, let it be, I want an ongoing mentorship or can I pick your brain for 30 minutes? Yeah. I, I'm totally flattered on it and it's awesome. And I remember being in that situation and asking people and I'm still in that situation asking people all of the time. It's why I have a podcast. I get to just have Mills Knows Bills on and ask her all the questions I wanted to ask her anyway. And it's, and it's an honor that you ask me on your podcast. You know, anytime someone's like, hey, will you come chat with me? Absolutely, let's go. <laughs> Yeah, it's cool. And and I think the things you do right are you make it easy for them. You come with the agenda. You come with the questions. Mm-hmm. You value their feedback because you, as a mentor, you want to be heard. You want to feel like you're adding value. Mm-hmm. It, it's simply agenda. Make it easy on me. Follow up with me on like how things went. Like, I love to hear that. Like, oh yeah, you helped me with this and this is what happened. Thanks for that. Never work. Yeah, yeah. Don't need the time. Exactly. Exactly. So let's take a hard left here and jump into another topic. Even though I I loved that we are one check mark done with the things that I wanted to cover, which is totally cool. Totally cool with me. You're you're an interesting person. I'm glad we get to just chat about other things. But another thing that I do have on my list is money mindsets and very curious to learn these. You have these four different money mindset categories. So I'd love to explore those. I think this might help people understand where they might be in their psychological journey when it comes to money, which is just as important as the actual hard skills of it all. So can you talk about those four categories and maybe a couple of sample questions from your money mindset questionnaire to help people potentially place themselves? Sure. So the four buckets, as I call them, the first one is growing up, money was an issue. And because it was an issue, it was talked about all the time. So now in your adult life, you have a negative perception of money. The second bucket is money was an issue. And because it was an issue, it was never talked about. It was swept under the rug, but that tension was always there. And so now you have a negative perception of money. The third bucket is that money was not an issue. And because it was not an issue, there was no need to talk about it. Everything was fine. But as a result, you weren't exposed to healthy conversations around money. And now in your adult life, you don't know how to manage your money and you don't know how to have those healthy conversations. And the last bucket is normally people who don't have as much of a problem with their finances. Money was not an issue growing up. And because it was not an issue, it was talked about. And it was talked about in a healthy, educational, supportive, and encouraging way. Now, that's not to say that money is an issue for you if you fall in one of the first three buckets, just as the last bucket, just because you had that doesn't mean that money is all good for you either. But I think the the really important thing to do first is to identify what bucket you're in. See kind of where you embody that in your day-to-day decisions as an adult. And then some of the questions I ask, one of my favorite ones is, what do you enjoy doing? What are you looking for there? Really? What do you enjoy doing, Justin? I'll tell you answer and I'll, I'll show you what I do. Rock climbing, for sure. Cat. Running, hanging yeah. out with my girlfriend. Okay. Podcasting. Those okay. are probably my top four. All right. So let's just choose rock climbing and hanging out with your girlfriend. Rock climbing. Is that something that you go to a gym for? Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. Is that like a monthly fee thing? Yeah. Okay. I pay in full, but for okay. a whole year, but yeah. And then there's equipment or gear that you want to get. Maybe some new clothes every now and then because you might wear and tear. When it comes to hanging out with your girlfriend, what does that look like to you? 
It can be one of two things. We're going out on dates, typically grabbing something to eat. Or we love lounging around, watching shows together, Mm -hmm. playing chess recently, other random activities at home. Okay. So that tells me, Justin, if I were to look at your budget, if there is an area that we needed to cut back on in order to help you reach your financial goals, in order to keep your money mindset in check, and allow the budget to be sustainable and not feel restrictive. The last things that are going to go is your rock climbing membership, money towards gear and equipment for rock climbing, dining out with your girlfriend every now and then, that Netflix subscription so you guys can watch movies and hang out, whatever it may be, because those are things that bring you life and they are things that you enjoy. If I were to take those away, that's just going to take your money mindset down the drain. And anything else I tell you, you're not going to listen to me. You're not going to implement it. You might try it for a little bit, but at one point, that budget's not going to stick. You're not going to pay off that debt. You're not going to start investing because you're going to have this idea that budgeting is super restrictive and you're going to have a horrible life. So why even try? It's really good and really thoughtful in all of that. And I think that's great on the budgeting side too. I mean, that is interesting because I'm at a place in my life now where... I have enough money coming in and I can inflate my budget any way that I want. But inflating one category versus another brings me far less joy. For example, I I did challenge myself to increase my budget with dates, increase my budget with personal development, books, conferences, courses, and gifts this year. I always felt restrictive on gifts and I gave myself just a $25 allowance every single month to buy one small gift for anybody. Like if I had stumbled across something or a friend, yeah, or a friend was, I don't know, launching a book or something and I wanted to support them, I could go out and buy it. No judgment whatsoever. But for Mm -hmm. me, places that I really restrict on, convenience food. Like me, grabbing a quick bite out to eat because I'm too lazy to cook at home never brings me any value or joy whatsoever. And I'm capable of restricting that. Like I love, I'm guessing, you know, Ramit Saiti, I will teach you to be rich too. And he talks Mm -hmm. about this in his book of just, mercilessly cutting areas that don't bring you joy whatsoever. And then just 10 xing all the things you love 100%. to spend money on. 100%. Yeah, that's worked very well for me. And it's, it's so true. I think that's why budgeting is not a one size fits all. Because what brings you joy is going to be very different from what brings me joy. When people ask me how much I spend on groceries, you know what a brick. <laughs> because I like cooking at home. I've gotten to the point where... Like I prefer my cooking over eating out because wow. that's my love language. I love cooking. We dropped $550 on a Dutch oven because I've always wanted one. And I made the best soup yesterday. <laughs> I need to come to your house. Dude, I'm, I'm not over. <laughs> I'm a pretty good cook. In, in another life, I would have been the show. But <laughs> the point is, my dining out budget is going to look a lot smaller than most other people's. My grocery budget is going to be a lot higher. My book budget is going to be a lot greater. Everybody has their own things. And that's why it's important to ask yourself what you enjoy. Like you said, ruthlessly cut out everything that does not bring you joy, does not serve you in any way. Because a budget is, you've heard me say it, a budget is a monetary reflection of your priorities. Yes. Your priorities. Who's to say you want to sit within these specific societal norms? No one else is looking at your money. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I love budgeting. For me, it's actually 
uplifting and freeing to have a budget and to know that I'm very intentional about my spending. And of course, you have to live within your means. You you can't be out there and be like, yeah, I really value living in a super cool neighborhood in a really awesome house and you just can't afford the rent. And you got to do one of two things, either find something else that can bring you some magnitude of that joy too, and or make some more money and, and allow yourself to grow into that. Yes, yes. There's nothing wrong with waiting for something. We bought this house a few months ago, more rooms than we had furniture for. The room to the left of me, pretty much empty. I don't <laughs> care. I don't need to, you know, go into debt trying to fill it all up right now. It will come. It will. It will for sure. I heard that you mentioned that you read The Fearless Money Mindset by Arian Simone. Anything that you took away from that book as something really foundational for money mindset? I think what's really cool is how almost intangible her perspective of money mindset is. It's very faith-based in the fact that it's, it'll happen. It'll come. There are things at work on my behalf that I'm not even aware of yet, which is so true. You know, if, you, if you look at life, there are so many different factors that could happen. I woke up to an email from somebody who I've never met who's interested in signing up for my coaching program. I didn't source that prospect. Somebody else who heard of me through somebody else then referred this person who then emailed me. There are things that work on your behalf. There is so much more working in your favor than not. And I think the way that she talks about that in her book is so positive and it's so refreshing and different from a lot of other finance books that I've read. That's nice. Yeah, I put it on my, my read list. I haven't read it yet, but it sounded like a really great book. Yeah, it's, it's fast. It's funny. Well, it's, <laughs> I like that. It's good. Yeah, one thing you've been challenging me since doing some research on you too is this phrase of, and notorious for saying it, I can't afford X, Y, Z. I can't afford this. And mm-hmm. you just heard me say, like, I got, I got plenty of money that I could buy pretty much whatever I really needed yeah. to buy. But changing that statement from I can't afford this to this is not a priority. And I've been catching myself over the last week because of you and trying to rechange that. And I think, I think honestly, I knew what I meant whenever I was saying I can't yeah. afford this. Yeah. But just in terms of my own mindset too, I wanted yeah. to make sure that I wasn't negatively impacting myself by saying some of those words and then starting to actually believe that. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, we as humans always want to prove ourselves right. So whether you tell yourself something positive or negative, you're going to try to prove yourself right. If Mm -hmm. I say to you, Justin, I'm going to hit 50K in revenue this year, I'm going to do everything I can to prove myself right. But if I say, oh, I'm never going to hit 50K in revenue this month, or this year, whatever I said earlier, I don't remember. I'm going to self-sabotage subconsciously because I want to prove myself right. You got to be so careful with language. You do. It, it makes a huge impact. Yeah, regardless if it's intentional or not with that. And maybe there is something else that you meant there. But yeah, mm-hmm. this, this was on the same line. It's about a year ago too that I ran into somebody that counter-corrected me on something too. And I said, I didn't have time for this. Instead, I said, I didn't make time for this. Mm-hmm. And I've been trying to catch myself on that as well. Because in all honesty, we all got the same amount of time. Mm-hmm. And I choose what I do with my time, regardless if I intentionally choose or I don't intentionally choose. Absolutely. I agree with that. 
So let's round things out here. I want to put a bow on budgeting. You have lots of good concepts around budgeting. One of my favorites was if you don't know how to manage $100, you don't know how to manage $100,000. Meaning more money isn't going to solve your inability to actually manage the money that you have now. Mm -hmm. It's, It's so true. And the backwards... Or opposite of that as well, because I, I actually had a client that I was talking to about this this week. Fixing a $10,000 thing is not going to fix a million-dollar issue. So when it comes to managing your finances, learn how to manage what you have. And as you make more, don't step up your expenses to match that. Use that extra money to really improve your financial future. And then the other way, if you find yourself in over your head or almost in over your head, look at the areas that are causing you the most financial strain first that you have control over and fix those issues. If you find yourself putting $1,000 in work on your credit card simply because you are spending $1,000 more a month than you're making, Look at the categories that are causing you to get there and give yourself a solid conversation. If you are overspending on your dining out budget by $1,000 a month, when I talk about making sure you don't cut out anything that you love, if you love dining out, it's a matter of making sure that it's not doing you a financial disservice though. Don't cut it out completely, but give yourself boundaries because you choose to, because it's your priority to put that money towards something else. So cutting out a $5 subscription is not going to fix a $1,000 issue. That makes sense? It does make sense. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Honestly, it's been a pleasure getting to research you and know a little <laughs> bit more about Mills Notes Bills and all the things that are happening over there. So once again, if people want to check you out, MillsNotesBills.com. You're also very active on both YouTube and Instagram as well. I think Instagram would be the place I would guide people to because you seem a little bit more personal and raw on there. It's not just all finances. You get to see a little bit of Amelia's actual like personal yeah. life out there too. So yeah. <laughs> it's kind of cool. But any anything else that you want to point people to or direct people to? No, I mean, if, if anybody has questions, my DMs are always open. Don't be a stranger. Again, ask for help. It's okay to ask for help. No doubt. And on that note, my final question for you. If you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? Practical budgeting is what I would teach. And I would teach it in a fun way that shows how you can have it all. It's not restrictive. You get to create the life you want because you are choosing to do certain things with your money. Yeah. And I, I imagine that you would probably have a blast teaching that. It's kind of cool hearing that. It seems like the goal that is driving you the most is actually getting in the classroom at some point in time. Yeah. Teaching, giving curriculum to high schoolers, mm-hmm. all really cool things that I think are probably in the near term for, for Mills Knows Bills. Yes, absolutely. Well, thanks again, Mills. I really appreciate you coming on. Once again, MillsKnowsBills.com. Same on YouTube, same on Instagram. Check her out. It was, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the episode. As always, I appreciate your kind words. If you want to leave us a rating and review on your podcast player right now, that would absolutely make my day. 
If you want to find episode show notes, our blog, and other great resources, head over to tsirpodcast.com. If you have follow-up questions, an idea for a future episode, or just want to say hi, we have a contact form on our website and those messages go straight into my inbox and I promise you, I will reply. But all right, guys, I really appreciate you tuning in. I love you all and you're not alone. Let's keep making it through our struggles together.